Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zaney, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by three of my colleagues, which uh, is tradition on Jobs Friday. This is uh, Friday, March the 10th, and we got the uh, jobs numbers for uh, February today. And that would include uh, Mr. Dorides. Chris, Dr. Dorides, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing, Mark? I'm okay. And uh, Miss Dina Talley. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? And Mr. D'Antonio, how are you? Doing well as always. Oh, I, you know, I always I say this. Italian last. That's week. what I was going to say. The three Ds. The three Ds. Yeah. Well, very good. And um, well, we made our way back from Phoenix, right? We had the summit. How'd, how'd you guys think it went? What do you think? I thought it was great. It was. Yeah. 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 Would you say otherwise? You would never say otherwise. Oh, that was awful. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, you know, I'm I'm unvarnished. I would tell you the truth. Okay. <laughs> no, well, that's wouldn't. good to know. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't have said the truth. No way. It's fabulous. It was fabulous. No, it actually was pretty good, I thought. I thought it went very well. Marissa, how was your sessions? Okay. Yeah, it was good. It was pretty well attended. Chris yep. helped moderate it. Um, and it was really interesting. We had Ronnie Moman from Lending Club, so it was nice to have sort of a fintech voice there. Um yeah, it was really good. We talked about household finances, which is what we talked about on the last podcast. Last podcast, yeah. yeah. Um, and we had our own podcast there, right? We recorded a, a podcast session. Is that going to go up uh, on Apple and Spotify and everything else? Does anyone know, or did did we record it for for that or not? Which is special to the uh, to the conference. Does anyone know? I Sarah, don't. Is... I was wondering the same thing. Do you, is that going up, Sarah? Sarah, Sarah runs the show here. Sarah, does that go it will on? take it will take a week before we get it back, and we'll. Oh, be but it is going up on Spotify and Apple and everything. If you approve, we'll put it up. Okay, yeah, we, I think we should. I think it was a. I don't know if I call it a classic, but it was quasi classic. Yeah, yeah good. We broke. Right, new we're ground. Gonna, what's that, Chris? We broke new ground, right, with the live studio audience. Yeah. If if I were going to do it again, I have some ideas about how I would change it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were a little removed, felt physically yeah. removed yeah. from our our audience, and we needed to be we needed to be with our audience. So even from each other, other right? yeah, and, and with each other, we were yeah, very we, far I, apart on the stage. We'll be in the round. We need to do it in the round. Yeah, you know what I'm yeah, yeah, with cameras and everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's Mr. D'Antonio. That's snickering. Or... Snickering's the word. I just wish I could have been there to see it. it oh yeah, like it time. Yeah, it was good. Hey, we're gonna, we got to do two things in this podcast. Number one is the jobs numbers. We've got to go through that. But we also need to talk about this uh, this uh, failure of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, SVB, which is you know, causing a bit of uh, agita in markets today. So why don't what should we do first, guys? The jobs numbers or SVB? Dante, what, what do you say? Always vote jobs. Always vote jobs. Okay, we're doing jobs first. So we'll do the jobs. We're going to go through those numbers. Uh, and by the way, I think that those numbers are right down the strike zone. I'm just saying. <laughs> inside the joke. Script. Inside joke. Stuck to script. Yeah. Inside joke. Exactly. The script. Yeah. Well, but let's talk about that. And then we'll do the game, the statistics game. And then we'll come back and talk about SVP, Silicon Valley Bank and its failure and what it means. Okay. Dante, you're up. Uh, give us a rundown on the jobs number four numbers for February of 2023. Sure. So we got another, I would call it strong jobs report for February. Uh, we added 311,000 jobs. 
three month moving average is now just over 350,000, which is up from you know a little over 280,000 at the end of the year. Uh, pretty broad-based gains across industries. There were a couple pockets of weakness, uh, transportation and warehousing, manufacturing declined for the first time in quite a while. Uh, information was down again for the third month in a row, which you know tech-related layoffs obviously having an impact there. Um, but also some, I think, good news if you're thinking about you know, maybe a little bit of softening in the labor markets. Average hours came down a little bit. Uh, average hourly earnings was a little bit softer than I think uh, we were expecting it to be, given the strength of, of the labor market recently. Uh, the unemployment rate ticked a little bit higher, back up to 3.6%, uh, because labor force growth was very strong. We added over 400,000 people to the labor force in February. Uh, labor force participation edged higher to its uh, highest rate for the cycle at 62.5%. Uh, prime EPOP, the employment to population ratio, hit uh, back to its February 2020 level, again, the highest that it's been oh, I didn't in see the that. cycle. Um, so I think, you know, all in all, like, like you said, it was a good report. It was, you know, if anything, I think maybe bordering on stronger than we'd want it to be, but certainly I think a better read than January, not as you know, sort of overly strong um, as what we saw last month. Okay, so uh, obviously labor demand still very strong, 311k. Uh, so some I saw some downward revisions, small downward revisions to the gain in January and December, uh, but but uh, still strong demand, you know, 300k plus on a three month moving average basis, as you say. But the good news is more labor supply, right? We got increased labor force participation, and as you say, labor force increased by over 400K. And that's why the unemployment rate notched a bit higher. So we were at 3.4%, I think as low as it's been since 1969 in January, and now we're back up to 3.6. Although I did miss, I didn't look, employment to population ratio for prime age workers, 25 to 54, which is another good measure of slack in the labor market, that, that rose to a new high this cycle. Yeah, it was up three tenths of a percent to eighty and a half percent. Okay, which matches okay. exactly what it was in February of twenty twenty. Oh, if I go back prior to the pandemic, right. it's ex- now we're back to where we were prior to the pandemic. So right. okay, which is a high. That was also a pretty obviously tight labor market at that point in time. Right. Okay, and and you mentioned wage growth. Uh, do you want to average hourly earnings wage growth in the report? You want to provide any more granularity there on that number? Because that that seemed to me. An important that seems to be an important number. Going if you're thinking about it from through the prism of the inflation, right? The the cost of of services, the the price for services, which are labor intensive, goes to wage growth. So all eyes on wage growth. You want to just provide a little more granularity there? Sure. A few ways to look at it. You know, it was up uh, 0.2% month over month, up 4.6% year over year. My guess is your preferred way to look at it will be the three-month annualized rate, which is 3.6%, which seems to be right in that sort of sweet spot of where you'd want it to be. Um, I do have a little bit of you know, caution. I think maybe there, there could be some composition issues there that are sort of keeping it down a little bit in recent months. So you've obviously seen some pullback in information, which is obviously a high-wage industry, and you've seen big job gains in leisure and hospitality and in retail over the last few months. So yeah, I think there could be a little bit of compositional effect uh, helping keep it uh, lower than it maybe really is. Yeah, your point is the uh, average hourly earnings measure does not control for the mix of occupations or industries. So if you get, you know, strong gains in low, uh, lower paying uh, industries like leisure, which we did in leisure, hospitality, and retail, that might bias bias down the the number. But uh, right. 
but abstracting from that. Uh, okay. Uh, can I ask before I move, I'm going to, uh, Marissa and Chris, I'm going to come to you next and kind of ask you to fill out this, uh, the storyline here, but on wage growth, do you, and this is, let me just frame it this way. If I go back a year ago or so, wage growth was a lot stronger than it is today. You know, pick your measure, average hourly earnings, the employment cost index, the Atlanta uh, Fed wage tracker. You looked at the at the the plethora of data and you say, okay, wage growth is, you know, over 5%, maybe as high as 5.5% uh, year over year. I look at the data now and it feels like it's closer to 4.5%. So we're not maybe, give or take, down about a point. Uh, and, and as you said, the kind of the benchmark where we need to go, or at least where we think we need to go to get inflation back in the bottle is three and a half percent wage growth, because that would be 2% inflation, the Fed's target, plus one and a half percent underlying productivity growth, which is kind of the productivity growth we've been getting for the last few years, abstracting from the ups and downs in the data. Why do you think wage growth has come in by a point in that kind of stylized frame that I just articulated? When the labor market has been so strong, lots of jobs, continued low unemployment, EPOP, as you pointed out, is now at a new cyclical high. So the labor market has not eased by any meaningful measure that we look at, but wage growth has moderated. So what do you think is going on? How, how would you explain that? I'm not sure that I have a good explanation for it, to be honest. I mean, yeah, it I, I've got like one, by the way. I've got one. I figured you had something in your yeah, pocket. Yeah, I'm by any curious. measure, like as you said, you know, there's not any significant loosening in the labor market by any measure that we look at. So I, I don't know that there's a great sort of underlying story as to why we would have seen wage growth come in. Other than I think obviously inflation has come in some. I think you know maybe the sort of demands from workers have you know eased off a little bit. We've seen the quit rate come in a little bit. You know, workers don't feel quite as comfortable jumping from job to job, which will take some pressure off of wage growth. You know, so we have seen a little bit less movement, a little bit more uncertainty, I think, in the labor market, but you know, it's it's still incredibly tight by pretty much any measure you look at. Okay. Uh, um, Chris, Marissa, do you want to answer that? Do you have a view on that particular question before we uh, move on back to the report on, on why wage growth has, has moderated over the past year, despite continued very tight labor market conditions. Marissa, do you have a, a perspective? Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with Dante. I mean, there is evidence that hiring Do you has ever slowed. disagree with Mr. Don, Mr. D'Antonio? Is this like an Italian so. thing going on? Here? No, it's oh. not an Italian thing. That's okay. What are you, I'm just what are sure. you implying? Exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> it's the three of us against you, Marcus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You D's against the Z. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. So, yeah. I mean, so there's some evidence that hiring has softened, that quit the quit rate has come down a little bit. I don't know that that explains a full percentage point decline in, in wages. I think if you look back at the peak of where wage growth was, you can see that there's some industry composition factors going on. So initially coming out of the pandemic, the hiring was all these in-person things, right? It was restaurants and bars and entertainment and retail that were really struggling to convince workers to come back to those sorts of jobs. And they had to offer very, very high wages. Wage or employment levels in those industries are still in leisure hospitality. It's still below where it was prior to the pandemic, but hiring has been very, very strong. And it doesn't seem like there's 
quite as much of a labor shortage as there was, you know, back then. So I think some of that pressure to offer very, very high wages has come off the boil. I mean, if you look at wages in leisure hospitality, and I think it was the summer of 21, wage growth was like 15% above where it had been, you know, a year prior. And now that's back down to something that looks more average, like 5%. So I think some of it can be explained by just a broader base of hiring across different segments of the economy. Yeah. Okay. So you, 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 what I took away is you're, you're, you're pushing back a little bit on my uh, stylized fact of no easing in the labor market. And you're saying, oh, it has eased up a little bit, most notably through the quit rate, quit the, the number of people who are quitting their jobs, still a bit elevated, but it's definitely down from where it was a year ago. And that closely is correlated with wage growth because it's the switchers that pe- people move in jobs where they get the big pay increases. So that, yeah, that, yeah. Ma- that makes, that makes perfect sense. Chris, do you have a, a pet theory as to what's going on here? I would have pointed to the quits as well. The other other aspect I can think of is um, uh, compensation in a non-pecuniary ways, right? So people still preferring mm-hmm. to have flexibility in their in their schedule, or you know, give me Friday off, or some uh, some uh, non-monetary uh, incentive or benefit versus demanding a higher wage gain. But it's just a pet theory, right? Yep. Oh, I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, I know people that have been, you know, looking for jobs and are willing to take less money if it means they can work from home three days a week and they don't have to go into an office. So I think that there is something to that workers valuing non-monetary compensation. Yeah, that's something we might want to try to test looking across industry because different industries have right. different kind of remote work dynamics and you can look at that compared to you know, what's happened with the wage growth in those industries. That might be something worth that. What about, remember when Bill Spriggs, the chief <laughs> economist of the AFL-CIO was on, he was talking about the minimum wage hikes across the country that they, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they've had some additional ones this January, but much less so than last January and the January before. Maybe that's taking a little pressure off. Does, does that resonate with anybody? We, we need to go investigate that a little bit. It but could, a, especially just given the industries, right? Because yeah. most minimum wage workers work in retail or leisure hospitality, which is where you saw this job growth and and demand for labor too. So that could have been exacerbating that for sure. Well, and I'm surprised no one took my pet theory. Maybe you guys don't buy into it. And that's inflation, inflation expectations. expectations. Yeah. I mean, inflation expectations took off this time last year when Russia invaded Ukraine, gas prices went north. And uh, those workers' inflation expectations uh, jumped. They, you know, went to their employer and said, "Hey, you got to pay me more to get to work because inflation is going to be higher." And but now, with uh, we're on the other side of the fallout from the Russian invasion, gas prices have come back down. People are less up in arms. Uh, you can see it in the inflation expectations data, and that's caused wage growth to to, to moderate. Does that make? Uh, does that resonate with anybody? Yeah, I think it fits into the the story. I think it's certainly a piece of the puzzle. I think all of the you know all the things we mentioned probably come together to give you that percentage point. That percentage really. point. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, let's go back to the report. There's a little of a little bit of a sidebar, and let me turn to you, Marissa. Next, anything that you want to fill in uh, with regard to the to the story around the jobs numbers that uh, you think Dante missed or you want to highlight? Uh, 
Uh, one thing Dante and I were talking about before we started recording was the demographic composition of, of the household survey and what the increase in unemployment looks like across different groups. Um, so I noted that over the past year, almost all the increase in unemployment has been among foreign-born bo workers as opposed to native-born workers. That means anybody who wasn't born in the United States, regardless of when they were born, right? So, I mean, it could be, um, doesn't necessarily mean it's a recent immigration. Um, and it looks like a lot of the increase was among younger workers to this time, like the, the teen under 24, under 20 unemployment rate went higher. Also among Hispanics, it jumped quite a bit. Um, and what else do I want to say? I mean, I think you noticed on that one on the foreign yeah. born that I've noticed, and correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, I didn't look today at today's numbers, but all of the increase or the vast bulk of the increase in the labor force since the uh, pandemic hit has been among foreign born. That's right. right. So that and makes sense the labor why, you would, see the, mm -hmm, why yeah. you would see the increase in unemployment there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you noted the, he noted the, I also was looking at the, the labor force flows and you know, there was an increase in the labor force last month of over 400,000. And more of those people went from um, you know, out of the labor force into unemployment, I mean, they entered and they started looking for jobs, then people getting laid off, uh, going from employed to unemployed. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a mix of people. Yes, yeah, some people there is evidence that people lost jobs were or were laid off. We see that in the duration of unemployment and the reasons for unemployment, but a lot of it was new supply into the labor force, which Dante noted with the the EPOP ratio rising. Got it. Got it. Chris, anything you want to add? I looked at those uh, demographics as well, and the one that stood out to me is that uh, a disproportionate share of the uh, new labor market entrants, the, the increase in the labor force that we're talking about, the 400,000 or so, came from folks with less than a high school education. So 350,000 people within that category entered the, the labor force. So that's consistent, at least with the narrative that you know it's really folks at the bottom end who are getting a lot of financial stress and having maybe being forced to pick up another job or uh, see how they can supplement their incomes. Can you, can you repeat that again? I missed that. So what age group has seen the biggest increase in labor? Force? No, uh, education, less than high school. Oh, less than high school. Uh, that's where the biggest increase in the labor force has been? That, last month. That's right. Last, yeah. Now there's month. some volatility there, so yeah. you don't want to read yeah. in too much, but uh, yeah, it just stuck right. out. So Chris, can I ask you, you're sitting at the Federal Reserve Board and you're making a decision around monetary policy. And you you uh, you get this report. Uh, all else being equal, does this what kind of impact does this have on your thinking? So interesting question. I, so I I think overall this report yeah. you can see what you want to see. Right, it's a little bit of a Rorschach. Right? right. So you could justify a fifty basis point if you just looked at the top line and said, oh, three hundred eleven thousand jobs is still way too hot in terms of the labor market. Um, or you can justify twenty five basis points because the wages are seem to be coming in, even accounting for the compositional effects. So for me, I, right now I'm kind of in that uh, second camp. I don't know that I need to be quite a, so aggressive because we do see some signs that the uh, there is some softening here going on. So I would go with the 25 basis point at this point. Yeah. And I guess, and we'll come back to this, uh, given what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and yeah, the that's kind right. of the, the, the angst now in the financials and the stock market act is, took it on the chin. And there's a lot of angst about the banking system, a lot of questions. 
which we definitely will come back in. But now having seen that, that would probably push you yeah. to 25, right? That's right. Yeah. And that's on top of it. But if I'm just yeah. looking at the labor market report. Yeah. I, that's I, what I said. You know, all, yeah. All else being equal. The, yeah. 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 And I said, like I said, you could certainly make the case uh, to be more aggressive, but I, I don't think it's needed at this point. Yeah. Okay. That That's my sense of it too. I, I mean, uh, you know, the 311,000 job gain is still too strong, right? I mean, I think a good rule of thumb is uh, if you want to get unemployment kind of moving north a little bit, and I, I think we, we we want some easing in the labor market, we want unemployment to get closer to four than three and a half, uh, you need a hundred less than 100,000 jobs per month. So right. if underlying job growth is 300K, which is kind of sort of what it feels like, <clears throat> That's still way too much relative to you know what we need. What I think we'd be looking at at this point, you know, to get to, to ease up the labor market and get it moving moving in the right direction. So uh, to me, that that does signal more rate hikes. But yeah. you know, then I look at the labor supply side. I look at labor supply, and that's actually pretty good. Uh, you know, labor force participation. You know, we're. I think we went to sixty-two point five percent, which is a new high since the pandemic hit. The peak before the pandemic was sixty-three-three, so we're down eight tenths of a percent. But that that now is pretty much what you would have expected if there had been no pandemic. Uh, so labor force participation is right where it should be, and we're getting more working age population. We were talking about foreign-born workers coming in. Immigration has picked up. So if you look at labor force growth, uh, it's about two hundred k per month. Um, so, you know, we're not, it, it's not, it, it could be the case that we, we could, if labor demand comes down to 200 K a little South of 200 K, we could be okay. We could see some easing up in the labor market if this continues. And at least so far it continues. Here's the other thing on labor supply that in labor demand that, you know, has kind of been bothering me. And I just, I'll throw it out there and see if anyone's got a kind of have a view on this is how can the labor market, how can one think the labor market's at full employment if we're creating consistently so many jobs, right? How is that possible? If you're at full employment, that means there's nobody out there to take a job, right? At the same time, the wage growth is moderating. So doesn't doesn't the fact that we're creating 300K jobs per month mean we're not at full employment? What am I missing? You get my point? Well, full employment's dynamic, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, what does right? that so mean? You can keep you can keep adding the the, the goalpost keeps shifting, so you just right. keep adding to 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 satisfy it. Yeah, but you get my point, though. <laughs> I right? do, I do. Yeah, you do, Dante or Marissa. Do you have any insight on that? I mean, this is something that's been bothering me for a while. I, I, I just how can those two things be true? How can you be at full employment and still generating so many jobs? Yeah, I, I don't know that you can be. I think I think part of the answer to that is that maybe we're not at full employment, and I think that's your point: is that we're probably not there yet, even though it seems like by a lot of measures we are. But maybe the goalposts, as Chris said, have moved since the pandemic started, and you know we need to be at three point two percent unemployment to get to actually be full, or we need the prime EPOP ratio to be you know eighty point eight to be full now instead of what we used to think of as eighty percent. You know, so maybe the the goalposts have moved a little bit. Or I'm not even arguing it's lower. Maybe it's not as high as people think. It's you know most people think it's over four, closer to four and a half. That that doesn't feel right to me in that kind of. Here's the other. Here's the other possible explanation. The employment data is going to get revised down. We're not creating as many jobs as we think we're creating. Right. 
I mean, that feels yeah. like even a more likely scenario. Lots of questions about the data these days. Yeah, <laughs> right? The response rates and everything else, you know. Seasonal the, factors. Seasonal factors. So, you know, makes me, the, the data just doesn't square. It never does, you know, obviously. That's why Dante gets paid the big bucks trying to square that data. But yeah. Okay. Mercy, do you have a, any perspective on that? On- yeah, I think I think we might see revisions and the you know the household survey has not been as robust generally speaking as the payroll survey has been so that might you know even this report yes there was a big increase in the labor force but you see maybe the absorption of people into the labor force is taking a little longer than it had been before and so that would suggest that yeah maybe the the payroll survey data are overstating a bit i mean and and then your point about full employment I mean, the unemployment rate, if we go back prior to the pandemic, was also very, very low. And we're having the same conversations about what full yeah. employment was, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we had an unemployment rate back then of three and a half percent. We were saying, how are we still creating jobs? So I think it's very likely that we have to revise what we think full employment is. Demographics have changed. I think the pandemic probably kind of screwed things up in terms of who's available for work and who's still out. And, you know, it it could very well be that there's more supply out there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, clearly there is, right? Yeah. yeah, We see it. We see it. Right. Okay. Anything else on the jobs number that people want to bring up before we, we move on? Going, going, going. Gone. Okay. Um, you can always come back later whenever you want. But Well, uh, there's the stats game too, right? I don't want to give it away. Right? Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and I have a confession to make uh, on the stats game. You don't I don't have, have a, I don't have a stat. So. Okay. You can just I, make plenty to talk about. Actually, I can come up with one while you guys are gabbing yeah, away here. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. While you guys are gabbing away. All right. Let's play the stat game. The stats game. Uh, the game is we each come up with a statistic. The others try to figure that out through questions, clues, deductive reasoning. The best question is one or best statistic is one that is not so easy. We get it immediately, not so hard. We never get it. And is apropos to the topic at hand, which is uh, jobs and, uh, you know, also what's going on in the, in the banking system today. Uh, so with that, let me, this is now uh, firmly tradition. We're going to begin with uh, Marissa. What's your statistic? Okay. My statistic and this, this straddles both topics, I'll say, Ooh. I think. Um, That's a big hint. Oh, wow. It is a big hint. I shouldn't have said that. Okay. Well, all right. You might get this. Minus 54,000. Jobs in finance. Information job losses over the last three Information job losses. He got it. He got it. It was one of my stats. I, what did you, that was your stat? I, I, it was one of the ones I had on my on my list. Yeah. So Yeah. That's a good one though. So we want to explain and um, yeah. tell us the so, importance. So Informa- the information sector, which includes a bunch of stuff, but it includes most of these tech companies, software publishing, you know, kind of the traditional tech, but it also includes things like newspapers, online publications, uh, the movie business. Um, this has lost jobs for each of the last three months. So lost jobs in December, January, and February. We've been talking about why these tech layoffs haven't been showing up in the jobless claims data, they are showing up in the in the payroll survey. So for the over the past three months, the industry has lost 54,000 jobs since November. And you have to go back, if you abstract from the pandemic, you know, you have to go back 
several several years prior to the pandemic to get uh, law consecutive losses that were that big in the industry. That's a good one. Very good. Um, okay, uh, Dante, you're up. Uh, I'll go to the second one. Fifty six. Fifty six. Fifty six. Is it related to jobs? It is. Is it in today's employment data? Yep. Oh, is that the gain in retail employment? Nope. That was. I think that was about fifty. Close, but and this is oh. not thousand. It's just fifty six. Yeah, that's what I was oh, going to say. Oh, he hasn't. Okay. He hasn't stipulated okay. the units yet. I mean, usually mm-hmm. you say fifty six thousand. If there's yeah, that, that would be that would be really pretty, rude. If yeah. you know, <laughs> it's not fifty six thousand. It's fifty six. It's actually fifty six. Fifty six. Okay. Correct. Okay. Is it in the household survey? <clears throat> it is not. It's payroll it, survey. It's in the payroll survey. <clears throat> fifty six. Is it a percentage? Is it the diffusion index? It is an index. You're correct. Yeah, it it's is a diffusion index. index. It's the employment diffusion index. Yeah, for total private industries. Yeah. Oh, so I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, ding 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 okay. ding. Where's right. the, where's that cowbell? Nobody has a bell. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of bellless this 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 time. Very good. Uh, so so you want to explain? Yeah, so that's the lowest that it's been since April 2020, when obviously we had tons of job losses. The diffusion index measures the percentage of industries that are adding jobs. So that means that 56% of industries were adding jobs in February. Uh, again, that's the lowest it's been in the first half of 2022. It was all the way up at 73. Uh, even in the second half of 2022, it had come down a little bit, but it was still 65. Uh, so it certainly suggests that you know, the strength of job growth, even though the headline number is still pretty strong, the strength of job growth, sort of the breadth of job growth is definitely diminishing. Um, and I think certainly sets us up for a situation where we could see job growth slow pretty dramatically if you continue to see weakness broadening out across more industries. Now, that's an interesting statistic. That's a real sign of, I think, cooling off in the labor market, don't you think? I think so. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so is it, it's 56, it's 56 and uh, once if it goes below fifty, is that consistent with recession or or not necessarily? What's consistent with recession? Do you know? Probably lower, uh, I, probably around a third or something. Yeah, I have to go back and look historically to yeah. see. I mean, just because it's under fifty doesn't mean that job you're losing yeah. jobs necessarily. Right. Obviously, the size of the gain or loss is not factored right. in there. But, um, and how many yeah. industries are in the? Is it two? I keep on saying two hundred fifty, three hundred industries that they provide data for yeah, something like that. It's, it's several hundred industries in the several in the hundred. Okay. Point. Yeah. That's a really good one. Can we keep track of that going forward? I, that's a, I think a pretty good window into uh, what's going on in the labor market. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, very good. Chris, you're up. All right. Two number, two related numbers. Okay. 105,000 and negative 1.4%. Are they job in the job numbers? They are. They're uh, in the pay- report. Yeah. Payroll survey. Um, really? Yeah. Yes. Oh, he's not yes. sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Both oh. are in the payroll it's survey. One hundred and five thousand. Was that leisure hospitality job gains? It is. It is. Minus one point four percent. So is that related to leisure hospitality? It is. Is that weight? Wage is that the growth? slow in the wage growth? Nope. No. Uh. The hours it's related worked. to leisure hospitality. Hours work. Hours worked. Uh, weekly hours worked index, aggregate index of aggregate yeah. weekly. Wi- yes, that's it. <laughs> yes. Exactly that's, what not, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> you got it. You guessed your own statistic. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, good. Well, okay. Well, you want to explain that one? Yeah. So 105,000 people, right? Uh, jobs added. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. But in terms of the hours, the weekly hours, uh, so you have the aggregate weekly hours, that actually declined. Interesting. Right? So you have more people, right? That have been higher, but the average hour, the average work week is is uh, shorter for them, right? So in right. total, you actually have fewer hours in the uh, leisure and hospitality industry. Is that month, a trend in the industry, or is that just it, a, had, been, it had been going up? Okay, so oh, it could uh, be just yes. a February data point, you think, or it could be, it could Maybe. be, but I I really just yeah. wanted to underscore that the yeah the difference you got to look behind the uh, numbers because you might be hiring a lot of people, but they might be part timers. Well, that's a the, Dante mentioned this, but just to call out again, uh, the other uh, sign of a bit of weakness in the report was hours worked declined again. Right. right. Uh, so that you know that's that's a key statistic, both both overall and in manufacturing. So, and that's a good leading indicator of historically of job growth. So, if you you know businesses generally cut hours back before they cut you know, jobs. And and so that might be another indication that things are cooling off. Okay. I got a statistic. I told I lied. I, I got it on the fly here. It's actually a pretty good statistic, but you know, it's, it's going to be hard. going to be hard. Um, I'm going to say zero. <laughs> zero is the number. Was it, is in it from the report? jobs report? No, it's, 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 it's apropos to the second, the next part of this conversation around okay. uh, Silicon Valley bank. That's a big hint, by the way. The share value of Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's pretty good. I don't know. If it, is, do you think it's exactly zero no, right now? No. Yeah, probably per, part could be. That's a good answer, but that wasn't what I had in mind. Okay. Uh, yeah. Is it a market financial market statistic? No. I'll give you one. I'll give you another statistic that very very related that might help you with this. Four thousand seven hundred. The market. S and P five hundred. No, that's that's more that's that three thirty nine hundred now. Yeah, thirty nine hundred, maybe lower than that. Last I looked, yeah, yeah, forty seven hundred. Okay. Um, what else can I tell you without giving <clears throat> it away? Uh, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank today? It failed. It failed. It went into receivership of the FDIC. Yes, that's another fancy way of saying <laughs> it went kaput. There was a yes. run on it. Yeah. Th- yep. Yeah. Yeah, there was a run. That's true too. So yeah. is that the number of bank failures? Oh, yes, yes. Great. That's it. Exactly. Number Wait. of bank failures in Until 2022. Today. Zero. Also zero apparently in 2021. No bank failures in 2021. But For- what's the 4,700? What do you think that is? Bonus. The number of banks. Number of banks. Yeah, very good. Well, you know, number of FDIC insured not- institutions to be precise. Uh- <laughs> You know, you know, because Marissa's saying receivership, you know, so, you know, 4,700, zero. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And now I'm speaking from memory, but like uh, memory of about five minutes ago when I looked, but uh, still memory. So I probably have it wrong. But I think in the, in the teeth of the financial crisis, I think it was 09, maybe 150 banks failed, you know, to give context, something along those lines. Yeah. Okay. Let's now... Turn to Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and uh, you know, of course, the other bank that failed, or I think, I think it's it is failing, or they're winding it down, is Silvergate, right? That's the crypto bank, the bank that was lending to the, the crypto industry. I, I, I don't, I, I think 
it is it is winding down. I don't know if it's actually been put into receivership. Has it? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Do you guys? guys I don't know? know. Okay, I haven't seen it that. Doesn't matter. But we now have two. These aren't I would call big banks, but they're they're not well, small either. Yeah, they're not small. Silicon so, Valley is two hundred billion, right? That's okay. Yeah, that's a big bank. No, two hundred billion. That's a big bank. Yeah. All right, look, Chris. Look, I'm going to turn to you. Maybe you can kind of summarize. You know what's going on. Here and then, uh, then the next question will be, well, you know, what do you think it means? But what what exactly is going on here? In, in the case of SVB, yeah. So the bank uh, failed earlier this week, right? They are undercapitalized. They are failed um, today. It failed today, didn't it? On Friday. Yeah. Okay, but it yeah. already it was starting. It. Uh, they were yeah. unable to successfully raise capital or over the last day or so, right? And that's what caused the ultimately caused the failure. The um, couple, I guess a couple of things went on here in terms of there was a there is a run aspect to this. So depositors started getting uh, concerned about their deposits and and pulling out pulling them out, and that certainly uh, hurt the financial position of the institution even more. The uh, value they had a lot of bonds on their um, on their balance sheet, and with the run up in interest rates, the value of those bonds has been marked down. So as they tried to sell those bonds, they the value or the price was actually lower than what they paid, and that certainly helped hurt their capital position as well. So, just uh, you know, in some sense, classic bank failure in the sense they just uh, were undercapitalized. But then, I think what's unique about this institution is that they have a lot of exposure to, of course, the tech industry, a lot of venture capital, right? So, they may have been taking collateral uh, uh, shares in uh, pre-IPO businesses. Right, so they're really trying to facilitate or help uh, the tech in- industry uh, in a major way. They had a lot of exposure there, and with all the weakness that we we're seeing in tech, that only snowballed into the uh, the broader weakness that they they face today. Yeah, can can I take a crack at that just to because it's complex and certainly let me let, yeah. me, exp- let me put it in my words and tell me if this is consistent with what you said. So the the. The problems really began a little over a year ago when the Fed started raising interest rates and the value of tech stocks fell sharply. So if you go back January, February, March, April of last year, that's when the stock market went south and that was led by uh, a big uh, decline in the uh, stock of uh, tech technology companies. And, they, and that goes to the fact that these are generally growth companies, uh, investors invest thinking that they're going to make money in the future, long into the future. So if interest rates rise, the present value of that future earnings is a lot lower. Uh, and so they get dinged, the, the valuations get dinged, you know, very significantly. So they got marked down. Uh, so that made it difficult for, because the stock market's down uh, and, you know, that affects the ability of tech companies to raise capital, to go out and issue new debt, new equity and and new debt, right? Because they're now worth a lot less. So they can't raise as much cash, but you have got all these companies out there that are kind of, you know, they're losing money, they have negative cash flow, they're burning through their cash and that's drawing down. And they, these, a lot of these tech companies do business with Silicon Valley Bank and uh, they started drawing down the deposits that they held at the bank because they needed the cash to keep their business going and try to get across the finish line and produce something that, you know, uh, that, um, that investors are, you know, invested in, uh, as their, the deposits 
started to run off. And of course, there's already pressure for deposits to run off because rates are up and there's more competition for those deposits from other banks. And so it, 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 there's runoff from that as well. But this puts pressure on Silicon Valley Bank to having to raise cash. They have to turn to their the assets they own, which in this they, they want to sell the, the most liquid assets, and that's treasury securities. I don't know if they held any mortgage securities, but treasury securities. But the problem there was the value of those treasury securities was now significantly lower because of the run-up in rates. A lot of those treasury securities they invested in back when interest rates were very low. You know, think back a year, year and a half ago, we were at record low interest rates. But now those bonds are worth a lot less in this higher rate environment. So now they're they're having difficulty raising the cash they need to pay off the depositors. That's a classic kind of mismatch between assets and liabilities that banks often are struggling with. And then, of course, you know you have uh, de- uh, depositors in those banks that are, uh, particularly those that have deposits that are over two hundred fifty thousand, uh, because then they don't have FDIC insurance, very sensitive to this. They get a whiff that there's an issue here and they start moving their money out of the out of the bank. And then that then we get into the classic bank run. Everyone kind of Jimmy Stewart, wonderful life running for the door. And the FDIC says, oh my gosh, I better sh- I better shut the door shut before all the cash is gone. And so they shut the door and they said, okay, now we're just going to sort this out. The bank is now under receivership. They came up with another Santa Bank of Santa Clara or something. I can't they come up with a different name. Now, for people with uh, uh, insured deposits, 250K or less, they're fine. They're, they may have to wait till Monday to be able to get their money out. But if you had more than 250K in the bank, now you got to get in line with all the other creditors, the bank, the bondholders, and everybody else. And that gets to get sorted out, you know, in the receive, the process mm. of receivership. Did, does that... I, I'm I'm sure I repeated a lot of what you said, but just to repeat it because it is so complex. Did I did I get that r- roughly right, Chris? Is that does that narrative sound right to you? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, okay, very good. Okay, uh, Marissa, uh, uh, Dante, anything you want to add to you know uh, you know thinking around how we got into this, how Silicon Valley Bank got into this mess? Anything else to add? I I. I understand that they kind of took on the role as sort of a, you know, almost like a venture capitalist in a lot of tech startups and um, tech, you know, new tech companies in the area. And as you said, we we've seen what's happened to the tech sector in the past year. So I guess my thinking about it is that it's sort of idiosyncratic to the kind of lending and the customer base that it had. You know, I mean, I. I think the question that everyone will ask is this is this a sign of something more systemic in the banking system to come it seems to me like perhaps this is not and that it's idiosyncratic to the industry in which it was heavily invested in i was going to go there next but before yeah. i do dante anything else to add no go ahead. no okay okay let's go back to that so the the obvious next question is well should I, what does this mean i mean is this is this a fissure in the fault line, financial system? Is this a fault line in the financial system? Is this an earthquake that's coming? I mean, are we going to see a lot of banks get into trouble and uh, we see a lot of bank failures? In your sense, Marissa, is no, that won't be the case. Why? Yeah, ten- tentatively no. Yeah, be- because tentatively of, no. Because tentatively of, no? 
just because of the the nature, as I explained, of of who they were lending to and the kinds of positions they appear to be taking, somewhat different than your tra- other traditional regional bank that has a broad based portfolio lending to consumers and businesses and credit card lines, auto lines, mortgages. I'm sure Silicon Valley Bank had all those things as well, but they also took somewhat of almost like providing seed money to a lot of tech startups too, which I think is, I think is unique, um, which is why I'm not as worried about something more broad-based. And you had mentioned another bank that looks to be in trouble that was heavily invested in cryptocurrency or Silvergate. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that seems a bit idiosyncratic and not truly representative of what most community or regional banks look like. Yeah. Well, Chris, same view. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I would concur <clears throat> at this point. It lo- does look like it's the uh, exposure to the tech industry itself, but I'd be a little cautious that the the um, valuation problem in terms of the assets, mm-hmm. that could be universal, right? So you don't have a problem until you have a problem right? in a lot of institutions. So if there was uh, some other industry, for example, that started to show some signs of, of stress and the banks serving that industry may very well experience a similar type of issue in terms of their asset base and what the v- true value of the securities that they're holding actually is if they if they have to suddenly liquidate right and try to raise capital so that would be the 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 major concern i would have that yeah i think in terms of the direct exposure to tech i don't see many other banks similar in a similar situation but there are banks that are very exposed to energy or very exposed to car manufacturing right so there could mm-hmm. be some other areas if indeed we get into more of this rolling recession type of idea right right um I, I do worry about the very large security holdings the system has. I mean, I think in, mm-hmm. in the wake of the financial crisis, one of the reforms was to have the banks hold more in securities, more treasury securities, more mortgage securities, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae that are government-backed securities, thinking being that they're more liquid, uh, that you know, if a bank gets into trouble – uh, that they could uh, easily uh, get cash uh, uh, to help them out if they had a lot of treasury and mortgage securities. And, and uh, this is obviously, a, I guess, a potential uh, problem with that strategy is that, you know, the value declines significantly in this in this world that we are just going through. I mean, if you go again back a year, year and a half ago, I think the 10-year treasury yield at one point was below 1%, right? So now it's four. That's a pretty big difference in a very short period of time. You know, what the the one thing that gives me a little bit of solace there is that uh, banks do need to stress test their balance sheets and their income statements to different interest rate scenarios. I mean, I, what I just articulated is not surprising. It's not news, and the banks have been required to you know stress against different interest rate assumptions. So it feels like the, the system should be able to. You know, kind of digest this. It's not great, but it should be able to digest this without this becoming a, a bigger issue. Here's the other thing I, I, I uh, that I think might be useful. Just I'm going to throw it out there. It's a bit, a bit of a non sequitur, but you know, I think important. The one sort of institution out there that can really help with this is the federal home loan bank system, right? The federal home loan banks were put on the planet back in the 30s to try to help banks with their liquidity issues. They can, the banks can use their securities 
on their balance sheet, particularly mortgage securities, to provide collateral to get so-called advances from the Federal Home Loan Bank to provide them with liquidity, uh, you know, through tough times like this. And that should be helpful here. You can see advances by the Federal Home Loan Bank have picked up quite meaningfully here over the last six, nine months. And uh, that should should help to uh, support the system. But I, I, I agree with you. I think at this point, it feels like this is more, as you said, Marissa, idiosyncratic, you know, something related back to the tech industry. Um, what about though, if interest rates, I guess it's a question of how high rates go, right? And how long they stay there. So this gets back to monetary policy. Do you think that now that we're starting to see some more stresses developing here in the system, that this might be a reason why the Fed might not raise rates as much and keep them as high as as, as long as they would? Or, or what does that mean exactly? Chris, do you have a view on that? It's got to figure into the calculus, right? Because they don't want the, you know, it's the cutting your nose to spite your face, right? If you raise rates so much, yeah, you might get inflation down, but then you've introduced all sorts of other financial system issues that the Fed is responsible for as well. So I think it it certainly has to enter the calculus. I don't know that this event alone, right, takes precedent now and, you know, they call off the inflation fight, but uh, I think that it certainly will be in the back of their minds. But And if there is this decision, if they're, if they're on the precipice of, well, is it 25 or 50, right, kind of undecided, you know, could go either way, this certainly would be a, perhaps an additional weight to um, take a pause here, maybe just take the, the 25 uh, basis point hike versus the 50. Yeah, I mean, it, this, this is part of financial conditions, is it right. not? Yes, right? absolutely. So when the Fed makes a decision around interest rate policy, it has a so-called reaction function. It sets policy based on a number of variables, one obviously being inflation relative to its target, two, inflation expectations, three, the strength of the labor market, how close are we or are we not to full employment, this kind of unemployment rate, and then financial conditions, You know what are, what's going on in the equity market, what's going on in the, the corporate bond market. And here, you know, what's happening with with the, the banking system would be kind of key to those financial conditions. So if if banks are running into some trouble here, and financial conditions are tightening, uh, meaning uh, they're tightening down on credit availability and raising interest rates uh, on the loans that they're making, that would be a reason. All else being equal, given you know what's going on with inflation, inflation expectations, the labor market for the Fed to be less aggressive in raising interest rates, raise rates less than otherwise would be the case, or perhaps not keep them there as long. So it would seem to suggest that, you know, here's another thing they need to be considering when they're setting policy here, you know, in the next couple of weeks when they meet again. Along that lines, do you think the Fed should take into account the the debt ceiling debate? If they see that there's 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 no resolution coming should they preemptively adjust their monetary policy? I, I, I would, your... yeah, I think it should be in their calculation in the following way. It might go to timing. You know, if you're going to raise rates, you know, it, it, we think the X date on the debt limit, this is based on really good work Bernard Yaros is doing, is mid-August, right? So things are really going to start getting tense, probably beginning around July 4th. You get come back from July 4th, you know, holiday, things are really going to get, tense. And hopefully the Fed's finished with its rate increases at that point in time. And it doesn't try to raise rates, you know, in in that in that period because I think it would be highly counterproductive. So yeah, 
I, I don't know that it affects the terminal rate, you know, the highest rate that gets or how long rates stay at the terminal rate, but certainly should affect the timing, I think. If they want to get some, you know, their rate increases and in, let's get it done, you know, March, May, and June. And that, that that's the that's the end of it for a while. So that'd be my thinking. You, you what do you think? You yeah, I think that? it has to be part of yeah. the calculus as well. Yeah. But but it gets right. it certainly gets a little sticky in terms of right. Okay, let me ask you this. <clears throat> And Chris, I, I, I might be pushing you too hard, but let me just ask anyway, because I push you all the time. So I'm used to what it. should I be watching to gauge whether the what's going on here is idiosyncratic to SVB or something that is more systemic, you know, broadening out a problem that's broadening out across the banking system? What would you be watching? I guess I would be looking at debt spreads or... You know, looking for market signals. What do investors, how are investors reacting here? Presumably they have more information about individual banks and are factoring that into their calculus. So used to be the case, I would say, go look at the TED spread. LIBOR, you know, remember LIBOR, the London Interbank (laughs) offering rate versus three month treasury bills. There's no LIBOR anymore, (laughs) right? You got, you got SOFR. So, so what what would you look at if you can't, you're not looking at LIBOR? There's got to be some, something in, you know, out there that you would look at, because uh, SOFR doesn't have any. That's the that's the the the, the uh, substitute for for LIBOR. LIBOR is the used to be the the rate that banks would charge each other for borrowing and lending to each other. So if there was a lot of angst in the banking system, and banks got nervous about lending to another bank, they'd say you got to pay me a higher interest rate. So LIBOR would rates would go up relative to the risk free three month Treasury bill, and that was like a a, a pure read into kind of the angst in the system around these issues. But LIBOR was discontinued. You might remember back, there was a scandal around LIBOR, LIBOR fixing because the, they, they came from dealers and they lied about LIBOR during the financial crisis. So they, we, they, the replacement is the, uh, is the so-called SOFR, the secured overnight funding rate. I think I got that right, SOFR, but there's no credit risk there. So it doesn't, doesn't represent the same thing. Is there any, is there some uh, other, Measure out there, Chris. That's similar to that that we can look at. I think of a single measure, because the credit yeah, default or swaps or EDFs yeah. or right, yeah, like the Ex- individual expected default frequency that on the banks. Yeah, the individual, yeah. but that, but you're thinking more of an aggregate. Is there? Some yeah, yeah. I'm just not up? sure. I mean, it, uh, it's you know something I hadn't thought about until just today when well. SVB failed. <laughs> right. <laughs> what? Well, what should I be looking at to gauge whether this is broadening out? Uh, so. Uh, maybe we can work on that. Good question. Uh, yeah, I'll think yeah, about yeah, it. I'm not, I'm not sure what we should be looking at, but uh, anyway. Okay. Anything else on that on that topic uh, uh, that anyone wants to bring up? Yeah, I don't know okay. if you saw how dramatically market expectations for what the Fed's going to do in a few weeks shifted today. No, yeah. no, I didn't see that. I think it was a combination do? of the jobs report and SVB, but it was a pretty dramatic shift. Um, yesterday, it was about a two-thirds odds of a 50 basis point hike in, in a few weeks, and that shifted basically the other direction. Now there's about a two thirds probability on a 25 basis ah, point hike in a few weeks. So sense. it was a pretty dramatic one day shift uh, in what the market's mm-hmm. expecting the Fed to do. And I don't imagine that comes just from the jobs report alone. I mean, that might've boosted a little bit, but. I was going to talk, uh, go to uh, recession probabilities again in the context of all this. Uh, so let's do that quickly and then we'll call it a podcast. <clears throat> Let me uh, begin with Marissa because she's always straddling the middle. 50-50. So Marissa, what's the probability? And I'm going to this I'm going to ask this question one last time and then I'm going to change it next time I ask it. But 
what is the probability of recession over the next 12 months? <clears throat> Seems a bit higher now. Um, a little worried, a little more worried than I've been. Um, so in Phoenix, cause in Phoenix, you were a little less worried. Right. So now I'm okay. on the other side of 50. Oh, you're on the other side of 50. Okay. But you're still at 50. I'm still at 50 with risks to the upside. Risks to the upside. Or the downside, depending on it, how you- And what bothered you the most, uh, the job number or the SVB? Uh, uh, I think despite what I just said about it being idiosyncratic, that worries me in the context of we know that banks are generally, this is a difficult environment for banks with rising rates, right? So I think- you know, to Chris's point, which I hadn't really thought about um, in that way, I mean, this could be emblematic of just stresses in other parts of the economy if they were to come and just banks struggling to get funding and financing. So, uh, you know, if we do go into a, a recession, I mean, we could see more, there could be more financial stress coming. I still think this is idiosyncratic, but I'm a little more worried than I was yeah, yesterday, makes, for sure. Makes, makes. Reasonable, Dante. I would. Say, I think I've been between forty-five and fifty. Yeah. Mostly. I would say I probably edge at forty-five. I think I'm. I feel like a little bit better. If anything, I think SVB is concerning, but I think you also might get the sort of weird benefit that maybe it has the Fed back off a little bit sooner than they would have yeah. otherwise, which maybe provides a little bit of upside. Yeah. Um. So I'd go forty-five percent. Yeah, that's interesting, Chris. I'm going to stick with sixty. Okay. Yeah. With a arrow pointing up. More nervous because of SVB. I guess both uh, the uh, job report and SVB. Um, it, it, and the jobs report, really. Oh, okay, interesting. Okay, yeah, uh, we're that the, the Fed will look mostly at the top line, top line, the three hundred and eleven thousand jobs. Yeah, it's so, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but let's see CPI next week, and yeah, let's see, uh, obviously that's going to be really important. Yeah, really key. Uh, I, I'm still at 45% probability recession in the next 12 months with the arrow pointing down and then pointing down because I thought the jobs numbers were on balance uh, pretty positive uh, that uh, the labor market is easing up here. And I, you know, wage growth is the bottom line, I, you know, that for me is the key and that, that moved in the, definitively in the right direction, even with the measurement issues. Uh, and also SVB, I think that's got to play a role in their thinking. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's got to be some uncertainty with regard to you know what kind of pressures are uh, developing in the in the securities portfolios of of banks. Uh, you know, if F SVB got turned upside down and all around in its uh, asset liability, uh, uh, you know, management, there's it may very well be that in other case in other institutions as well. So something to watch. So I, I'd say the arrow is pointing down at this point. Um, but next time I ask, I'm going to ask for uh, probability recession in 2023 and then probability recession in 2024. I think we need to All right. We need to do that. We need and to that gets that. interesting. Yeah, that, that gets interesting. Yeah, very good. Okay, we're going to call it a podcast at this point. Uh, I uh, think we covered a, a lot of ground and um, uh, looking forward to, uh, to next week. But uh, take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. Talk to you soon. 